and continue to remain standing as we read our scripture this morning. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, following many trespasses, brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. This is God's word. You may be seated. We're continuing in Romans. Our title this morning is The Two Humanities, Romans 5, 12 through 21. I want to encourage you this morning, ask you specifically to open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are some in the aisles um, and some at the back. You know, I, I often think that I do you a service by putting the scriptures on the screen. At the same time, I realize I'm doing you a disservice because this might be the only time during the week that some of you crack open a Bible. And and I really want you to open your Bibles this morning because this text is a difficult text. As you were reading it, I, I, I think some of you were going, I hope he explains this. So I'm going to ask you in the words of my elementary school teacher to put on your thinking caps. And, and if you're not part of a life group, I just want to remind you that uh, that's part of this whole thing, that most of our life groups are discussing the sermon. That's the place to go and say, man, I got this question. And Jim said this, and, you know, I don't get it. So it's important for you to be a part of a life group, even at that level. So think about that. And let's uh, let's get our noses in the book this morning. And let's, uh, let's try to understand what, what God wants to say to us. Quick review, broad overview. The point of chapter 1, beginning at verse 18, which is kind of the after Paul's introduction to the letter, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 20, could be summarized as the certainty, the universality of condemnation that we're all under sin, that we all sin. 
And that results in condemnation. The point of chapter 3, beginning at verse 21 then, and running through where we left off last week, chapter 5, verse 11, can be summarized as the certainty of justification for all who by faith transfer their trust from their own moral and religious efforts to the accomplishment of Christ through his death and his resurrection. In chapter 6, which is where we're going next week, Paul is going to turn to the theme of sanctification, which is the process, having been saved from the penalty of our sin, of being progressively saved from the power of our sin and growing to maturity in Christ. But in this final section now of chapter 5, Paul turns to the universal application of the saving work of Christ, by which he means the availability of salvation to everyone who believes. The late Anglican theologian John Stott wrote regarding today's passage, all students of verses 12 to 21 have found it extremely condensed. Some have mistaken compression for confusion but most have marveled at the almost mathematical precision of Paul's writing and have admired its craftsmanship. It may be likened to a well-chiseled carving or a carefully constructed musical composition. There is probably no no passage that has been more influential and more formative on basic Christian theology than this passage. And there's perhaps no passage in the New Testament more difficult for the modern Western mind to understand. It's difficult because Paul expresses himself in terms that are familiar to Jews and perfectly understandable to them, but unfamiliar to us. William Barclay wrote, if we were to put the thought of this passage into one sentence, it would be this. By the sin of Adam, all men became sinners and were alienated from God. By the righteousness of Jesus Christ, all who trust in him become righteous and are restored to a right relationship with God. I'm going to do my very best to unpack this passage for us this morning. So let's dive in. In verses 12 through 14, Adam and Christ are introduced. And he says this, that sin came into the world through one man. If we don't understand this, we won't understand the rest of the passage. We won't understand basic Christianity. Sin came into the world through one man. Back in the garden, chapter 2 of Genesis, verses 16 to 17, God gave the man, Adam, who was the only man at the time. Eve had not been formed yet. Adam is there alone in the garden. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. The command is 
not introduced, it's not explained, it just hangs there. Over the story, over the garden, over the man. In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. If we go on to chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. Eve has now been created. Adam is elated. And the serpent shows up. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, by the way, isn't, isn't that the way Satan always acts? Did God really say? Is that really reasonable? Can you believe that he'd say something like that? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. One thing I know about the first few chapters of Genesis is that in order to interpret the passages, it's like walking along the edge of a razor. And you can't move to the right or to the left. You have to take it. You have to go where it takes you. So the man has received in chapter 2 the command. The man received the command. He was by himself when he received the command. The conclusion of the New Testament is that the Eve was deceived. The woman was deceived. But the man sinned with knowledge. She gave some to her husband who was with her, who received the command, who knew better, and he who was not deceived, and he ate. And he therefore bore the accountability. And so the, the, the witness of Scripture is that sin entered not through two people, not Adam and Eve, but through one man, Adam. Adam was the door through which sin entered the world, and sin was the door through which death entered. And so Paul says, death came into the world through sin. Remember, God has said, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely, what? Die. And in Romans 6.23, Paul says, for the wages of sin is death. Well, what kind of death is, is Paul talking about? It is On the one hand, physical. While Adam and Eve didn't die for a number of years, in fact, Adam, we're told in Genesis 5, lived to be 930 years old. The seeds of death were planted at the time of their disobedience. More importantly, Adam and Eve died spiritually. 
Spiritual death is separation from God. On the day that they sinned, God and humans turned in divergent directions. Humanity turned toward pride and self-exaltation. God turned toward redemptive, restorative, rescuing love. Next, Paul says, death spread to all men because all sinned. Death spread to all men because all sinned. And again, in Genesis 5, which is kind of a parenthetical chapter between the time of Adam and Moses, it bears the title, The Book of the Generations of Adam. And so it's the descendants of Adam leading to Noah. And the prominent thing in that passage is that everybody dies. And then he died, 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 and then he died. It's a book of death. Death spread to all men because all sinned. All sinned. What does this mean? If we're going to understand Paul's thought here, we have to be quite sure what he means. And we need to be equally sure that he was dead serious in his declaration. There have been a variety of interpretations of this connection between the sin of Adam and the sin of all of the rest of us. One of the flimsier ones is this, that each person is his or her own Adam. That is, just as Adam sinned, every human sins, but there's no real connection between the sin of Adam and, or the sin of anyone else, for that matter. Then to say that Adam's sin is typical of the sin of all mankind. Okay. Second interpretation is this, that we inherited from Adam the tendency towards sin. There was kind of a disease that got handed down from generation to generation. And that's true enough. And if you don't understand that that's true, have kids. It's a terrible thing to see your own sins grow legs and run around your house. So it's true, but it doesn't really fit with what Paul is trying to say in this passage. The statement all sinned, and this is important. I don't whip Greek out on you just to be cool. It's absolutely essential to understanding what Paul is saying here. The statement all sinned in the Greek grammar is written in the aorist tense, which denotes something that happened at a distinct point in time, once for all, but has continuing effect. William Barclay wrote, if we're to give the aorist tense its full value here, and in this argument we must do so, the more precise meaning will be that sin and death entered into the world because all men were guilty of one act of sin. So this third interpretation of this passage is the one that I think carries the most weight and fits best with what the text is saying and what in the in the broader context what Paul wants us to understand which is this that when Adam sinned 
We all sinned. It's as if we were there. And in a Hebrew manner of thinking, a Jewish manner of thinking, we were there. And as a result, you and I and all of us share in the guilt of Adam. And as a result, we stand condemned as members of his helpless race, dead in sin. I often think it's funny that the old sitcom, I don't know, sitcom, Adam's Family. You guys remember the Adam's Family, anybody? If you do, it's because you had a black and white television. <laughs> but they're appropriately named Adam's Family because they're all dead. There's a a theological term I'm going to lay on you here. It's called federal headship. You may have never heard it. Federal headship. And what it means is that one person stands in for, for a whole group of people. One person bears accountability. One person bears responsibility. One person symbolizes, represents the whole crew. So let me give you a couple of examples that are found in Scripture. If you've read the story of Joshua and and the Battle of Jericho, you remember that story? You may have sung the song, Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, Jericho, Jericho. Joshua fit the Battle of Jericho, and the walls came tumbling down. You remember that story? Okay. Before the battle, the command was given, there are certain things... Most of the things in Jericho are korban. That is, they're they're set apart unto the Lord. They're consecrated. You do not take the plunder of Jericho as your own possession. And yet there was one, one man, who did. And he stole some things. He put them in his tent, hid them there. The next battle they fought was at a little town called Ai. They didn't send very many soldiers up to Ai because they didn't need to. It was, it was just a little village. And up there at Ai, they got their pants spanked. And several of them died. And they came back beaten and crippled and bloodied. And Joshua's on his face before the Lord, and he's saying, God, what happened? And here's what God said, Joshua 7, beginning at verse 11. Israel, listen, Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. You say, wait a minute, it was just one guy. So why, God, are you blaming all of Israel? Federal headship. Here's the concept. They have all sinned because one man sinned. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become, they have become devoted to destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things, that which was stolen from among you. So Achan was found out and he and his whole family were put to death. Before the Lord. 
federal headship. And again, God blessed them. Israel sinned through Achan's sin. Another example is in Genesis, where Abraham had, was out rescuing his crazy nephew Lot. And, and, and he took his whole army, Abraham had an army, and they went up to this place and they rescued Lot, and in the process they, they won this major battle and they came back just laden down with plunder. And on the way back, there's this figure named Melchizedek that just shows up. And he's identified as the high priest of Salem, which may have been an early name of the city of Jerusalem. And he comes out and he blesses Abraham. And it says there that Abraham gave to this Melchizedek one-tenth a tithe of the plunder. In the Old Testament, after the giving of the law, it was Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob or Israel, who was the head of what we refer to as the Levites, the, the priestly branch of the family. It was to Levi that tithes were given, and they were distributed through Levi. And here's what the writer of Hebrews says about this. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Now, Levi wasn't born for another thousand years. But the Bible says, and this is a Jewish way of thinking, he was in the loins of his ancestor Abraham when Abraham met Melchizedek. Federal headship. So Paul in 1 Corinthians then, aren't you glad we're in the New Testament now? Paul in 1 Corinthians says this to the believers there in the city of Corinth, for as a man, as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Again, federal headship to humanities. You today are either in Adam or you are in Christ. If you've read Paul's letters, you, want, you know that one of his favorite phrases was in Christ. It appears 87 times in Paul's letters. In Christ. You're either in Adam, you're part of the Adam's family, and you're spiritually dead and separated from God, or you're in Christ's family. John said of Jesus in John chapter 1, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So as he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But to those who received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, to, to have a transfer of, of citizenship from Adam's family to Christ's federal headship. And he goes on, he says now that death then reigned. Death had its reign. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. 
But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. You go, whoa, whoo, that's a big thought. And again, we we really need to understand Paul's line of thought here. So the Bible teaches that death is the direct consequence of sin. The Jews believed that Adam had not died. Mankind would have been immortal. Adam died because he broke a direct personal commandment of God not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That law was exclusive, that command was exclusive to Adam. The Mosaic law didn't come until the time of Moses. And if there is no law, Paul says, there can be no disobedience to the law. Sin can't be counted against us. So think about this now. From the time of Adam to the time of Moses, there is no law. God has not handed down a law. Not a single one. Nevertheless, Paul says, though sin could not be counted against them, between the time of Adam and Moses, everyone still died. Death reigned over them, though they could not have been accused of breaking a law. The law was non-existent. There was no law. And yet they died. Why then did they die? And it was, and this is Paul's point, And we need to really get this today. Because they had sinned in Adam. Their federal head. Their involvement in his sin caused their deaths, although there was no law for them to break. Because of this reality of the complete solidarity of mankind in Adam, all of us and each of us literally sinned in him, and because death is the consequence of sin, death reigned over all mankind. Martin Lloyd-Jones observed that the world is a place of cemeteries. Everyone dies. By the way, this is one of the, this, this would be the foundation. If you were to ask me, Do babies who die go to heaven? I would say yes, they do. Because they're too young to be conscious of sin, and God is a gracious God. God is a merciful God. Where there is sin, no law, there can be no sin. Paul goes on, he says, Adam is a type of the one who was to come. He doesn't name him, but in context, it's obviously Christ that he's pointing to. Adam is a type of the one who is to come, who is Christ. Well, what's a type? A type is something or someone that prefigures or foreshadows something or someone or something or someone greater. And Adam is a type of Christ because he, like Jesus, is the 
federal head of a whole race, a whole humanity. So redemption is the story of two men. One disobeyed God and placed the entire human race under condemnation. One obeyed God and he provides justification for all who will turn to him in faith. In verses 15 through 17 then, Adam and Christ are contrasted. Paul says, first of all, the free gift is not like the trespass. Verse 15, the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. I want you to notice that two-word phrase in the middle of verse 15, which is much more. Much more. What Paul is saying is that God's grace in Christ is all out of proportion to the offense of Adam. As serious and as far-reaching as it was, Adam's single solitary sin led to the judgment and condemnation of the entire human race. God's gracious gift is life. Life abundant, life eternal, and this word translated free gift that keeps being identified with Jesus here in this passage is the Greek word charisma, which means a gift that is completely unsolicited, completely undeserved, completely unearned. We couldn't have asked for it, we didn't deserve it, but it's free. So the rest of the story in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. He goes on in verse 16, he says, the free gift is not like the result of Adam's sin. He says, the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin for the judgment following one trespass, one Single, solitary trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift, the one single, solitary, free gift following many trespasses brought justification. To be justified is, means that it's just as if I'd never sinned. Notice Paul says one man's sin. We might say one man's one sin. The one sin of the one man brought judgment and condemnation on all of us. Then notice Paul speaks of one free gift given in the face of many trespasses. And that one gift brought justification. God's grace never stops being amazing. See, what people did was to rebel, resulting in condemnation. What God did through Jesus Christ was to restore, to forgive resulting in justification for those who will receive it. For those who will receive it. In verse 17, he says, In Adam, death reigned over us, and in Christ we reign in life. In Adam, death reigned over us, in Christ we reign in life. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, 
much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Notice again Paul's use of that phrase, much more. Again, Paul is saying in as many ways as he can, I think that God's gracious gift of of righteousness, of justification to condemned sinners is all out of proportion, all out of proportion to our sin. See, whatever your sin is, was, will be, however horrendous, however habitual it may have become, it's no match for God's grace. The blood of Christ covers all of our sin. All of it. The sins you've committed, the sins you're, you've contemplating committing this afternoon, the sins you will commit, all of it is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. I saw a bumper sticker one time that said, Heaven doesn't want me and hell's afraid I'll take over. Which I thought, that's a pretty arrogant statement, really. In the face of the blood of Christ, the the enormity of the sacrifice of Christ, if if you think that hell's afraid of you because your sin is so great you're going to take over, you got another thing coming. Plus, Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. It's already claimed. See, and you and I should say the same thing. We are the chief of sinners. But the blood of Christ is greater, greater by far, infinitely greater than all of our sin. Jesus said, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. In verses 18 to 21, Paul compares Adam and Christ. He says, first of all, that one trespass led to condemnation for all men, and yet one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. The writer of Hebrews writes about the work of the priests in the temple in the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. And I read somewhere, and it just the, the image has stuck in my mind, that on those high and holy days in Jerusalem, when there were many, many sacrifices being offered at, on the Temple Mount, that the blood of the sacrifices would flow down into the city streets so that you couldn't even walk through the city without getting blood on your feet. The volume of blood that was shed was, was enormous. And here's what the writer of the Hebrews says about that. And every priest stands daily, stands daily at his surf, service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never, whoa, check this out, can never take away sins. How mind-boggling is that? That all of that blood that was shed could never take away sins. All of those animals that were sacrificed. But, he says, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, 
He sat down, work finished at the right hand of God. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Amazing grace. Paul goes on, he says, By one man's disobedience, all were made sinners. By one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Couldn't help as I was preparing this verse of a hymn we used to sing when we were just kids. Kept running through my mind. And the verse, the song, the hymn is, And Can It Be? And the verse that kept going through my mind was this, He left His Father's throne above, so free, so infinite His grace, emptied Himself of all but love, and bled for Adam's helpless race. Tis mercy all, immense and free, for, oh my God, it found out me. Amen? The law came in to increase the trespass, Paul says, where sin increased, grace superabounded. See, if righteousness is by faith alone, it's reasonable to ask where law fits into the picture. After all, didn't God give the law to Israel through Moses with the expectation that it would shape their life and shape their conduct, provide guardrails, as it were, to hold sin under control? And Paul's answer to that question is so surprising. He says that the law came in to increase the trespass, to aggravate it, to make sin even more sinful. I mean, here's a, here's a simple little application here. Because... I know that you and I have a sin nature. And so when you see a sign that says, don't step on the grass, you might go right up to the edge of the curb and go, boink! Because you're going to stand on the grass. Don't pick the flowers. It's what we do. Tell me not to do something. Guess what's going to happen? I'm going to do it. The law came in to increase the trespass, Paul says, to make you sin. Fancy that. To aggravate sin, to make sin even more sinful. In chapter 7, Paul's going to add the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. But the good news, Paul again wants us to understand, is that where our sin increased, God's grace in Christ, and this is a literal translation, superabounded. And again, the picture is this. You think your sin is so great, so heinous, so habitual, so ingrained that God could never forgive you? Here's your answer. God's grace is infinitely greater than all of your sin. All of it. The law was never intended to provide salvation. Its sole purpose was to 
persuade people of their desperate need for salvation, their desperate need for someone to deliver them from the power and the penalty of sin. And so Paul wrote to the Galatians, the law has become our tutor, our school teacher, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under a tutor. See, God's purpose, to close now, God's purpose is that just as sin reigned in death, Paul says, so also grace might reign through righteousness, the righteousness of Christ leading to eternal life. Life wins. Life wins. Grace wins. Christ wins. Welsh pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones penned these words, Look at yourself in Adam. Though you had done nothing, you were declared a sinner. Look at yourself in Christ and see that though you have done nothing, you are declared to be righteous. Tim Keller, one of my favorite writers these days, said this, this is the gospel. You are more sinful and separated from God than you ever dared imagine. But you are more loved, accepted, forgiven, restored and reconciled than you ever dared ask. See, all you have to do to remain under the reign of death, it's nothing. You're already there. If you are still in Adam, you're on the highway to hell, sorry. Your destiny is eternal, irreversible separation from God. And all you have to do to receive God's free gift of grace, forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, righteousness, and eternal life with him is to transfer your trust from yourself to what Jesus Christ accomplished for you at the cross. And I urge you, as an ambassador of Christ, be reconciled to God. Receive his gift. There's no club to join, no secret password, no decoder ring, no financial investment, no contract to sign other than this. God, I'm a sinner and I need a Savior. Please forgive me of my sin. And the scandal of it all, the scandal of the cross is that regardless of who I am and regardless of what I've done, when I turn in faith to Jesus Christ, God accepts me. And I, my citizenship is transferred from the family of Adam to the family of God. I want to invite you this morning into the family of God. Let's pray. Lord, your word is amazing. Your grace is more than amazing. It's mind-boggling that you would accept the likes of us. And yet we thank you that in Christ you have accomplished everything that is necessary for our salvation. And ours is only to receive it 
only to receive it. We want to make it complicated. We want to make it about law. We want to make it about morality. It's none of that. It's simply turning to you in faith and turning away from the life of sin to a life of of love and obedience, receiving the gift of life in exchange for our death. So, Lord, I pray for those today who may be on the edge of that decision, that you would grant them the gift of faith today that leads to life, life eternal, life abundant. And I pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.